Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Ali Haji to the show. Ali Haji is the CEO of Ion Energy, a leader in the exploration and development of lithium salars within Mongolia and a strong pioneer in the third wave of the green energy revolution. Since 2019, the company has been aggressively growing its assets and its extensive growth strategy through acquiring new resources and sites. Ali, how are you doing today? Doing very well, Raj. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Ali, it's a pleasure to have you on. And I'd like to start with what might sound like an unusual question, but it's about time management. I had the opportunity to research you for this episode, and I see that you're the CEO of two companies. How do you manage that? Very valid question. Um, in terms of time management, something I've prided myself on is, is for both myself and, and employees that I've had over the course of my career, uh, is the ability to recognize priorities um, and thus prioritize your tasks uh, accordingly. Uh, obviously, your typical two by two, which is uh, impact versus effort, uh, plays a, a big part in everything that I do on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but the two companies that I do lead um, are in the same jurisdiction. Uh, they have a joint venture agreement between them. Uh, and they are working towards the common goal of providing battery metals to the uh, the broader world or that part of the planet. And so they are very synergistically uh, co-entwined, if you will. Uh, and so my time is managed uh, equally on each of those companies, but uh, obviously priority drives where I drive most of my effort as well. So do you schedule out certain times of your day to address one or the other or just as it comes along? I would schedule based on um, a planning sort of uh, agenda, if you will. Um, each, each of those companies has an agenda that, that, that dictates a specific news flow, catalysts and milestones at a, at a certain part of the year. And so my timing uh, or my time dedicated to each of those companies would, would be very much uh, dictated uh, by that agenda and the planning uh, action that we take as a company or as the planning actions that we take as, uh, uh, on behalf of both companies. And I know I might be digging into details, but I'm just curious, from your morning perspective, how do you lay out your day? Um, first off, I'm up relatively early, around 5 a.m. Um, it's my, I've had the philosophy whereby, you know, in the previous days of having a BlackBerry, uh, the goal was always to ensure that you don't walk into the office blindsided. Um, so my morning starts with, with, a, with a coffee, I, I read through the news, uh, do a bit of uh, meditation, and then head off to a shower. Um, get dressed and then ultimately sit around uh, the house and wait for my daughter to wake up, um, have, have some time with her, and then start to review my emails. Uh, and the emails are generally that. Make sure you don't walk into the office blindsided uh, and that you are ready to tackle anything that that, uh, uh, that you need to over the course of that day. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that. Now, you mentioned precious metals. Can you give the audience an overview of Ion Energy and your role at the organization? 
Of course. And I think, you know, they're not really precious metals, but they are very much required. Um, I'm the chief executive of Ion Energy, a company that trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange on the venture market under ticker ION. Uh, we are in the business of exploring uh, for lithium brine in Mongolia. Uh, we currently hold 110,000 hectares of highly prospective brine licenses. And we went public in August 2020. Shortly thereafter, we commenced exploration on Babayul, which is our flagship license. And we've since acquired Urgachnarn, which is our secondary license. Uh, the maiden exploration program at Urgachnarn actually will commence when we are in country in about a week's time. I think I heard you say 110,000 hectares. Can you give us a point of reference of how big that is? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a you know sometimes that's lost with with a lot of folks, and and I'm glad you asked that question. So Babayul, which is 81,000 hectares, uh, our flagship license in Sukhumtar province. Uh, that's about five times the size of the city of Vancouver. So it is a significant piece of land. And if you add on the Urgachnarin license, you know, you're in and around the five and a half to six times the size of the city of Vancouver. So pretty significant uh, from a size perspective. Now, I don't know a lot about Mongolia, but I'm expecting or I expect that those areas of land aren't nearly as populated as Vancouver. That's precisely right. Uh, Mongolia is... Uh, one and a half million square kilometers. So for our Canadian listeners, about uh, one and a half times the size of Ontario. It has a population of three and a half million people, uh, of which close to three million are centered in and around Ulaanbaatar, the capital. There are multiple other small towns in the country that uh, you know support either, either mining projects or, or, or uh, renewable energy projects, uh, or even border crossings uh, to help goods and services flow between China and Mongolia and China and Russia. So you could drive for hours uh, across Mongolia and the Mongolian landscape and, and not run into anybody at all. Now, our CEO, Ben, had spent some time in Mongolia in his previous life and has talked about his experiences there, some of the harsh weather, living in yurts. Um, what's your experience been like? It's, it's been a combination of those, I think. Uh, my first visit to Mongolia was uh, during uh, the summer months, so August, very pleasant. Um, lovely dry weather with highs of you know, 26, 27 degrees, beautiful blue skies. The evenings would dip down to about 15 degrees Celsius or so. Uh, some, some, some evenings a bit colder than others. Uh, but I landed in the capital, um, ended up uh, meeting with, with our colleagues out there and, and to dinner. Uh, very cosmopolitan in, in some degree. Uh, you know, it does uh, lend itself more to the European culture than it does the Asian culture. So very similar, uh, very similar to what you would find in perhaps uh, a small town in, in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, but having driven out to, to Step Gold, which is a sister company that I was advising on my first visit to Mongolia around the same time that I, I co-founded Ion Energy, uh, you know, there, there were just that, yurts and, and gears. So four yurts uh, in the middle of the Mongolian steppe um, beautiful landscape, the grass smelt like lavender. Um, and we were out there looking at the, the asset that would uh, ultimately become a gold producer in country. So that was my very first experience in country. Uh, I've been there now about uh, six additional times, um, each one uh, slightly different or uh, than the last, not in a positive or negative way, but I think more importantly, I've been able to build relationships with uh, Mongolian nationals who I now consider uh, you know, close friends of mine uh, and in some cases mentors as well. So uh, Mongolia is a country with a vast history. You know, when you look back to the days of Chinggis Khan and, and, and uh, the, the Mongolian Empire, uh, but also when it was part of the, the, the Soviet Union, so uh, being an ex-Soviet satellite and what they've been able to accomplish uh, since then. So uh, Mongolia is a place that I hold uh, very near and dear to my heart and uh, 
uh, I would encourage those that haven't been out there to, to definitely uh, have a visit. It definitely sounds like a fun adventure. Now, going back to Ion Energy, so you're on lithium exploration. Can you perhaps share how you're going about doing that? Of course. Uh, lithium brine in particular is currently found um, in, in Latin America in what's called the Bolivian Triangle. So uh, in, in the Lithium Triangle, which is uh, Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile. Uh, these are salars, uh, essentially uh, surface lakes, very high in mineral content that include lithium in them. Uh, the situation or, or the ge uh, geography in, in Mongolia is slightly different, where you have paleo salars, which are ancient buried salars, um, so they're not surface lakes like you would find in Latam, uh, but they are rich in mineral content as well. So the first step of, of that exploration program would include looking at geological mapping uh, to better understand the, the surface geology. Uh, you would then do uh, what's called a, a, a micro-seismic program to ultimately paint a picture of the layers below surface. Uh, once that's done, you would, you would do some auger sampling, which is ultimately picking or, or digging up the ground to, to bring up samples that would be assayed. And then some reverse uh, circulation or, or RC drilling um, to get through that stratigraphy and pull up the, 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 the different brines as well as the, the evaporizing phase uh, that may exist. So it, it is a, you know, a, a multi-pronged process. Um, it, it is not as intrusive as, say, um, taking a, a massive bulldozer or a shovel to the ground. Uh, the holes are quite narrow. We're um, only looking at about six, six inches wide at the, the most. Uh, and that really helps you paint the picture um, of the landscape and, and the ultimate mineral content in the ground. So in researching this conversation, I was able to watch some videos on YouTube specifically around the Chile operations and looking at the lithium lakes. Are you saying that your process is different from those lithium lakes? The process is not. The geology is different. Um, so the exploration process is different in that it includes a fair bit more drilling than it would be collection of brines on surface. Uh, but the uh, uh, the geology, in a sense, and, and the ultimate extraction methodologies that would be used uh, would also be a tad bit different as well. So Chile, uh, you're looking at uh, evaporation ponds, which uh, if our viewers are, are familiar with or listeners are familiar with, can be quite uh, water intensive because the vast majority of the water that you pull out of the ground ends up in the atmosphere. Um, and therefore, it's lost from that basin and, and the land will sink. Uh, whereas uh, if you look at what we're looking to achieve in, in Mongolia, uh, direct lithium extraction uh, being the process of choice, uh, you end up pumping back the vast majority of the water back into that water table, thereby um, unaffecting its structural uh, capacity or, or um, integrity. Now, in my understanding, even during direct lithium extraction, there are other minerals that you're also able to extract. That's correct. So you, there, there are specific resins or, or filtration systems um, that, that will pull out different minerals. So you could have lithium as well as a number of different uh, byproducts as well. Now, how have recent lithium prices changed your business model? Well, they've made uh, things uh, that, that would never have been viable, uh, viable or assets that would have never been viable due to a very low uh, concentration of lithium uh, now viable because bringing those assets to production, um, would it, it, your cost of production would still be profitable, uh, so to speak. But you're also seeing a rapid advancement in technology that would be utilized uh, to ultimately extract uh, the lithium from various different uh, resource types. And again, because of the pricing of lithium, the increased demand, how have you seen interest from partners and countries change over the last year? I think 
If we're talking about ION, I think uh, they've changed uh, uh, tremendously um, as a result of our proximity to, to China, China being the largest uh, consumer. If we're talking about the global landscape, um, it's very similar in a sense where you're seeing um, everybody through the supply chain uh, take an interest in, in, in getting involved in lithium. And I think uh, as recently as last week, uh, Tesla has announced uh, a need or, or, or a desire uh, to become a lithium miner purely because of the pricing uh, of lithium and its exponential uh, sort of growth over the last two year and a half or so. So I think Tesla did show interest recently in lithium mining but mm -hmm. let's come back to ion for a moment let if tesla were to start like ion for example how long is the process from when you start to when you're actually able to get it into the supply chain and to a battery manufacturer it uh you know the the good old consultant answer uh will be used here and that is it depends, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> um and and the reason i say that is is you know you could have an asset that is uh, fantastic that has 2000 ppm uh, that is located at a high elevation that uh, will have a very rapid evaporation cycle, uh, but it won't have the necessary infrastructure around it to, to move that evaporite over to a refining plant, which will ultimately bring it to battery grade uh, lithium. Uh, from ION's perspective, uh, we do know that one of the largest wind farms in Asia is being built in Sukhbatar province. Uh, we expect to have an early resource indication on Bavayol uh, before the end of this year. On that basis, there would be additional funds that need to be raised in order to, to, to build uh, build out that production facility uh, for for a, a relative amount of uh, uh, concentrating, if you will. So you would have to bring your, your product about 9.99%. And then it would very likely end up on the back of uh, a train car uh, and heading into China or, or, or uh, uh, elsewhere uh, for that further refinement into 99.9 before it ends up uh, in a battery. So. Uh, the answer is it depends, and I think uh, we'll have to take it one day at a time, but the expectation is that uh, on the back of that early resource indication at the end of this year, um, we'll be able to paint a better picture of uh, uh, when exactly uh, we, we, we can start producing uh, lithium outside. Now, I think I've heard you in a previous interview mention that you're 20 kilometers from the China border, is that correct? Yes, Babayol is 23 kilometers from the Chinese border. And so... The Belt Road Initiative would enable you to not only get your product to China, but to other parts of Asia and to Europe. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Um, unfortunately, with the um, events that are taking place in, in Russia today, um, going through that nation to, to serve the European market um, uh, would have to wait for those issues to abate. Um, but ultimately, the One Belt, One Road Initiative, as you pointed out, will run from uh, China through to Ulaanbaatar, the capital of uh, Mongolia and then all the way through to St. Petersburg, uh, which borders uh, Finland. So, th so there is the potential there uh, to serve both markets. But I think uh, with the state of the world today, um, the primary consumer would be the Chinese market. Now, I've also heard that we are, quote unquote, short on lithium for the EV goals for this, for this decade. How short are we from a global perspective? If we if we look at the benchmark minerals numbers, um, you know the anticipation is that uh, we need close to five times as much lithium uh, than we currently have in the supply chain, and that's why we're seeing this uh, massive increment in the pricing. Lithium is 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 not a rare um, element; it is one that is actually very abundant in the in, in the world's uh, in the Earth's crust. The challenge with lithium is finding lithium with a good chemical makeup uh, to, to to ensure that you can extract it at uh, economically viable costs, uh, but also 
that it has the longevity and the quality required to, to, to operate an electric vehicle battery for 100,000 uh, to a million miles in, in, in mileage. Uh, and that's where the challenges lie. So the, the shortage exists as far as the required quality of the lithium that needs to go into to electric vehicles. Uh, but in terms of its abundance in the atmosphere, there's plenty of it. Understood. Now let's double click on your story for a moment. You're not an engineer, investment background. What moved you to get into the mining world and then specifically lithium? Yeah, that's a valid question. So I'm uh, of Indian heritage. I grew up in, in East Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, I went to high school there, did my GCSEs and uh, my A-levels. And then I came over to Canada and, and uh, went to uh, the University of Western Ontario, uh, where I did a computer science major with a minor in software engineering. I then moved on to the asset management industry um, as, an, as a technology asset management in, uh, analyst. My goal there was to track uh, the total cost of operation of uh, a major investment company's global technology um, assets. Um, I then sort of uh, found that to be not as challenging as I had hoped, and uh, I was moved over to a sort of procurement compliance background where I worked a number of risk management initiatives, uh, moved over to the program management world where I worked on mergers and acquisitions for both uh, uh, companies in, in Asia as well as uh, the U.S., um, and then I ended up in uh, London, uh, co-leading a center of excellence for investment operations. Uh, throughout that uh, sort of career and, and, and growth trajectory, I found that there's ha there has to be something more uh, to, to our being and our existence, uh, something uh, you know a little more holistic and, and something that would sustain um, uh, humanity for years to come. Um, having seen the temperatures rise in Kenya, even as early as, as, as the days that I was growing up there and, and the droughts that occurred all through sub-Saharan Africa, um, climate change has always been something that I've been uh, sort of following quite closely. And when I left my role at Invesco in London uh, and moved back to Toronto, where, where the vast majority of my family is, I was given the opportunity to visit Mongolia uh, to look for resources and, and, and advise a company to go public. And uh, I thought, what better opportunity for me than to look for lithium, um, an element that, you know, was, was what has been in, in the battery space for quite some time, can be charged using renewables and, and can be stored without uh, any, any major environmental implications uh, in a country that has only been explored uh, for about 3% of its, its overall landmass. And so that, that prompted me to, to, to look for lithium in Mongolia. And uh, ultimately, I've now fallen into the running a mining company uh, role. So a bit of a, you know, a trajectory, if you will, for our listeners. But uh, I hope that explains why um, I've opted to, to, to look for lithium as opposed to, uh, you know, carry down the path of uh, investment banking and investment management. It does. And an interesting point is that, so I'm here in Dallas and um, my parents live very close to where I do and they're leaving for Nairobi tonight. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, my, I'm planning to go there with my family for the first time. Well, my wife for the first time in July. Very interesting. They're going for about a five, six week holiday. And I grew up in London. So there you go. Fantastic. So you've been on this journey for a few years now. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? I think it's that, uh, you know, you, you surround yourself with, with uh, good people, uh, with knowledgeable people, uh, but also learn from, from everybody. Um, we, we, we talk about going to, to, to university and, and furthering our education. But I think education is best obtained from your, your interactions, experiences, and travel. Um, I've learned that uh, you must uh, be a good listener. You must uh, 
be supportive uh, when somebody is is uh, uh, is is not feeling at their best. Uh, but ultimately, when it comes to to my decision making strategy or or the way that that I like to to advise uh, folks that have either led from a professional or personal perspective, and that is you know go slowly with consensus, um, ensure that consensus is achieved, and then execute rapidly. Uh, there is no requirement uh, for anybody to, to sort of just get in there, roll up their sleeves, and and, and get to work. Uh, while, while that might be, um, you know, something out of need, um, it it will it will not be something that will allow you to succeed. I like the idea of go slowly with consensus. Now, earlier you mentioned taking a more holistic view, an idea of more. Where does that come from? That comes from very much my upbringing. I think you know when you. When you're growing up in Kenya, um, a developing nation, you, you're you're really just enamored with the the natural beauty of the country, but also seeing happiness um, in the eyes of those that have very little, um, and, and that's something that helps you park the material world and look at yourself more spiritually and and, and find you know truly what does make us happy, um, what is it that that uh, we should be appreciative of or grateful of. And that holistic view is is exactly that. It, it's let let's try and make the lives of those around us better, but let's do it in a way that that, that um, allows us to understand ourselves better. You know, take steps away from uh, being drawn towards those material things, and and let's try and make a, a better future for us all. How do you balance parking the material world while trying to provide returns to shareholders? It's uh, it's you know it's it's an it's a chicken and egg situation. In order to, to achieve that holistic view and, and park the material world, you do have to have funding, and that's where the shareholders come in. And the only way that you make those shareholders happy is if you make them money. <laughs> so it is a it is a catch twenty two and a paradoxical sort of environment that we live in today. Uh, but ultimately, if you look at um, um, the vast majority of the, the the philanthropical individuals on the planet today. Um, they have made fortunes for themselves and they then donate those fortunes to those various foundations that allow um, things to be better for, for multiple folks. Have they uh, parked all of their, their uh, material things? Perhaps not, uh, but there is somebody that I draw inspiration from and that is Azim Premji, uh, the ex-chief uh, executive, now chairman of uh, the Wipro Group in India. Uh, you know, he currently drives uh, the old Corolla that he's been driving for a number of years, um, continues to to dress in a humble way and uh, conducts himself very much like the man he was when he started that company. Uh, and so that that's that's what I'd hope to, to, to achieve one day is that level of humility. You know, I've heard perhaps fable mythology, but I've heard that NRN, founder of Infosys, does the same thing. Yeah. I'd have to look him, look him up. I think I read recently that him and his wife still fly economy, I believe. There you go. So it is so, possible, but it is a hard balance. <laughs> it is, it is. So jumping to the future, let's say it's 2030, pick your favorite p- publication, Forbes, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal. If they were to write a headline specifically about Ion Energy, what would you like it to read? Uh, that's a fantastic question. If it's just a headline, here's the impact Ion Energy has had on the Mongol- Mongolian people and economy. And it would be immediately followed by a chart where you're seeing an increment in GDP, um, a level of uh, infrastructure being built that would uh, allow Mongolia to be a bigger exporter um, of finished products as opposed to an importer um, of just about everything that they bring into the country today. 
So build a, a and I, I understand that's not a headline, but the philosophy or the, the messaging surrounding what I'm saying is that I'd like to see Mongolia um, come out of uh, where they are today on the back of ION, making Mongolia a battery manufacturer that uh, plays, plays a pivotal role um, on the global EV and uh, electrification trend. Now, I could be reading between the lines here. On a previous interview, I heard you mentioning your relationship with the Mongolian government, both parties. Today, you're speaking about you know, the potential or the, or the hope that you can help Mongolia perhaps increase GDP. Manufacturing, I might be hearing there. What about the Mongolian people drew you so strongly towards them? Well, it, it's really just their their demeanor, their 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 welcomeness, uh, the, the way they're, they're, they are open to to, to visitors. Uh, they're they're hardworking. Um, they they're intelligent. Uh, you know, they, they tend to spend the better time, a better amount of their time, uh, trying to understand not only themselves but things around them. Um, and if you if you dig even deeper and go back further, uh, you'll find that uh, the company that we did an RTO with or reverse takeover for Ion to go public uh, was was a, a, a capital pool corporation called Spirit Banner, and uh, we've since, uh, as a group, um, created a number of, of uh, capital pool companies called Spirit Banner, and the significance of Spirit Banner uh, really is the fact that. When you drive through the Mongolian landscape, you see these these rock formations, kind of like what you would find in northern Canada that the Inuit would uh, would create. But they will have a uh, a pole or, or a, a, that, that that extends out of the ground, and would have the banners like you would expect to see in Nepal. And those banners, you know, would flicker in the wind, and you would see this big blue sky, and you would feel uh, completely humble. And the Spirit Banner is really the Mongolian way of showing that they worship the sky and they see themselves as these little entities that have no relevance in the material realm. And that, I think, to us, um, and me in particular, when we formed Spirit Banner and the group of Spirit Banner companies, uh, is what drew me to the Mongolian people. It is a, a country that, that, that essentially adores and, and, and worships the, the, the big blue sky. That really is beautiful. And I guess the second part of the question is, do you have perhaps plans to help the Mongolian government set up manufacturing there locally? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's the conversation we had back in 2017 uh, with the University of Science and Technology um, and the government uh, to look at um, lithium. And, and that was spurned about by saying, you know, this is an opportunity for Mongolia to, to really put itself on the map. Um, when somebody buys Mongolian cashmere anywhere in the world, the wool, is sent to China or any other textile mill and then shipped back to Mongolia before it's exported around the world. Um, that is not sustainable, nor is it increasing the, uh, uh, the, the industrialism or industrialist nature uh, of a country. And uh, with ION, the hope and goal is that eventually, on the back of that big wind farm that I mentioned earlier being built in Sukhbatar province, Mongolia can become a manufacturer of these batteries. And uh, if, if so, you know, if, the, if, if uh, fate will have it, uh, perhaps they will be a manufacturer of electric vehicles one day. Uh, but I think one step at a time and, and then bringing a battery manufacturing plant to production would be a, a huge win uh, for Mongolia and its people. It's a beautiful vision. Now, last question. You know, we started with time management. You mentioned the meditation. You mentioned being able to prioritize also taking a holistic view. But the last question is, and this could be personal or professional, but if you could share some advice, recommendations, words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? 
It would be what I said uh, earlier, uh, you know, continue to be a good listener um, uh, and, and ensure that you do go slowly with, get, with consensus and then execute accordingly. So consensus and, and, and going at a pace that allows you to build uh, that big picture view of, of, of the problem at hand or, or even uh, the path forward uh, is what I would urge you to do. Well, Ali, I think being a good listener is a great place to end. I wish you best of luck with Ion Energy. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.